Marcus, you just finished the JFK series. I did. Yeah, yeah. Six parts. One of the uh, most difficult series we've ever done. And you closed the chapter on that. Uh Uh-huh. And then you opened up another unsolved mystery. (laughs) Immediately. It was literally the next day. It was the next day. (laughs) So let's put a trench coat on you. Call you Robert Steck. And here we go. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Uh, and uh, what we wanted to do this episode uh, is that, you know, of course, we've got the Ramones series coming next, which, you know, the Ramones is, of course, a, a gigantic story. Lengthy. Very lengthy. Uh, and so to give us a little bit more time on that, we thought that we would cover something that we thought was going to be easier. It was just one night. <laughs> and how, uh, how hard could that be? And, of course, it ended up being... Uh, just as much work as doing the Ramones part one was. So we're going to do it anyway. We don't win even if we cheat. (laughs) So now that we've covered the beginnings of the UK punk scene from the perspective of the damned, let's stay in the world of early UK punk for just a bit to cover one of the most interesting parts of the saga from a scandalous point of view. Ooh. The murder of Nancy Spungen. Oh, Nancy. The the alleged death of Nancy Spungen. Well, the death is not alleged. Oh, uh, the murder of the alleged <laughs> Nancy Spungen? I'm not doing this right. <laughs> you'll, you'll get your feet when it comes to crime. It takes a while. All right, all right. Now, for those of you unaware, Nancy Spungen was the girlfriend of the second bass player for the Sex Pistols, a snotty, untalented young man by the name of Sid Vicious. And Nancy ended up dead on the floor of a hotel bathroom in New York City in 1979. Now, we really didn't talk about the Sex Pistols all that much after The Damned really took off. So, let's give a short overview of how the Sex Pistols ended up imploding in a relatively short period of time. After the Sex Pistols recorded their first and only studio album, bassist Glenn Matlock was unceremoniously kicked out of the band for reasons that still aren't crystal clear to this day. Yeah, it's obviously not because he washed his feet too much. (laughs) Which is what Johnny Rotten said. Or he liked the Beatles. (laughs) I just think he just didn't fall in with the group as as well as the other members did. Like, uh, you know, Steve Jones and Paul Cook, they grew up together. They were mates. Yeah. And uh, Johnny Rotten, well, you know, he was just angry about everybody. Everybody. Johnny Rotten didn't like anyone. Yeah, and it was a power struggle between him and their manager, Malcolm McLaren. Mm -hmm. And so Johnny Rotten's like... You know what? I should bring in my really good buddy, Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. Of course, when he knew him, he wasn't Sid Vicious at the time. No. Just a nice little young lad called John Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Glenn just left the band. He didn't even care anyways. He didn't care. He was just, he's like, I'm ready with my new band called Rich Kids. Mm-hmm. EMI is interested. Uh, good riddance to all of you guys. Yeah. And the Sex Pistols had a history of kicking people out because they didn't have the right look. Or the right attitude. Remember Wally Nightingale. The most talented one. (laughs) Just like Glenn Matlock. Which is kind of funny because the other members of the band to this day are like, maybe kicking him out was not a good idea. (laughs) However, the person they replaced Matlock with was not brought into the band because of his vast musical talent. Which does give some insight into the decision to replace Matlock with someone else. Reinforcing the notion that the Sex Pistols were a manufactured boy band, which that's, of course, like the always the biggest critique when it comes to the <laughs> Sex Pistols, they chose a young fan and friend of Johnny Rotten's named Sid Vicious, 
who didn't even know how to play bass. Oh, he kind of knew. <laughs> you have to at least know. I mean, I think he taught himself uh, how to play like just by like just listening to the Ramones debut album. Yeah. And just playing and playing. And then he's like, well, if I got this far, I can probably be in a band. But I mean, yes, it was a boy band. I don't know how manufactured we can call it because they were already like that. Yeah. And then just got mo- it just got encouraged more and more by like management and fans to the point where they became the myth, the yeah. legend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Manufa- I don't know if manufactured really is the right because it's not like Malcolm McLaren took a bunch of like regular kids off of the street and dressed them up in punk clothes and said, go for it. Oh, but- Avril? Yeah. <laughs> No, they they were not Avril Lavigne. <laughs> <laughs> like they got they did they did walk the walk as well as talk the talk, but it was calculated. The Sex Pistols were very calculated. Oh yeah, especially with getting Sid Vicious in because the truth is is that he is a pretty boy. He's very pretty, yes. And a pretty boy who's just hanging around in the scene. He grew up with his mom, single parent moving around, didn't have a stable upbringing. He was already a mess, already doing drugs, because his mom was a heroin addict. Yes, his mom was a terrible heroin addict, lifelong heroin addict. And so Sid Vicious meets uh, Johnny Rotten at Hackney Technical College when they were teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so they got to know each other. They became like best friends. And even with uh, the other Johns, because there were four Johns hanging around King's Road, like Mm -hmm. uh, John Wardle, Mm -hmm. John Gray, uh, John Ritchie, John Rotten, or John Lydon. (laughs) That's not his real name. (laughs) His real name is not John Rotten. (laughs) So these Johns are fucking around. They're having a good time. And that's when Malcolm asks Johnny Rotten, hey, you want to be in a band? He gets in the band. And then when Glenn leaves the band, that's when Sid Vicious comes in. And that's when he becomes Sid Vicious, named after Johnny Rotten's pet hamster, Sid. <laughs> yeah, because uh, what Johnny Rotten said, they both bite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sid Vicious, I mean, he was, Sid Vicious was absolutely a known quantity in the UK punk scene. He was not just brought out from nowhere. Like, remember, he was, so he had an audition to be the lead singer of The Damned when Dave Vanian went to go audition and just didn't show up. Like, he started fights. Like, he was not, he was not a good dude. No. He, he was an asshole. He beat up Nick Kent. Yeah. Uh, he, you remember that in the damn series when it, he threw a bottle at the damn because he was pissed off that he wasn't the lead singer and yeah. then blinded a girl? A girl b- lost her fucking eyesight because of Sid Vicious. Like he was, I mean, I, I would say it's not, I mean, I'm not being controversial when I say Sid Vicious was a piece of shit. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but so pretty. <laughs> Such a girl. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> now, the Sex Pistols were on the verge of true international stardom following the release of their album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. But if you truly want to make it big in the music business, you've got to make it in America. However, manager Malcolm McLaren proved to be just as inept in America with the Sex Pistols as he'd been when he tried to manage the New York Dolls earlier in the 70s. Remember Malcolm McLaren, he came over and said, let's put them all in red patent leather and do a communist theme. You're all communists now. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you what to do. (laughs) Sure, okay. Yeah, sure, sure, fine. I mean, yeah, the New York Dolls, they had their own problems and they probably were going to implode anyway. Uh, But Malcolm McLaren just made sure that that implosion was as embarrassing as it could possibly (laughs) be. Now, rather than booking the Sex Pistols in places like New York, Boston, and Chicago, McLaren put them in places like Memphis, San Antonio, Baton Rouge, and Tulsa. And this so, is 1978. So for the our non-American friends, that's Tennessee, <laughs> Texas, Louisiana... 
Texas. <laughs> Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, Tulsa's in Oklahoma. These were not like like even now booking shows in these towns is difficult. Like when I was booking shows in Lubbock in the like mid 2000s, early to mid 2000s, like it was impossible to get people to come out to these fucking shows. Imagine trying to get people to come out to a fucking Sex Pistol show in Tulsa in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> I can. There's a book on it. Well, as a result of this stupid fucking book, and the tour was, uh, aside from a good show in Atlanta, uh, a fucking disaster. It really was. I mean, as you said, they booked a tour without realizing how big America is. Yeah. With all the driving, because they had to go through six states in nine days in the middle of winter. Yeah. And it, states that are very far away from each other. Exactly. And, and that's a funny thing that uh, maybe a lot of people who live in countries like England who are, that are a lot smaller than America, like if you remember in that movie Spinal Tap, when he calls <laughs> up his girlfriend and he says, why don't you fly to New York and take a taxi to Indiana? Because <laughs> that's what we'll be playing. <laughs> <laughs> it's that exact mindset. It really is. I mean, I don't know how they don't get it. I don't know how they don't look at a map of America and they just go, nah, it ain't that big. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. Now they learned. They, they learned. learned. And yeah. it was, of course, it was a disaster just traveling all the time on the bus. And uh, they always had to babysit Sid because he was already on drugs at that point. He was a heroin addict. He was going through with withdrawals because he was having trouble getting drugs in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> But the failure of both the tour and internal strife within the band for reasons that will soon become clear, besides just Sid Vicious's heroin addiction, ensured that the Sex Pistols would not be long for this world. Famously, Johnny Rotten from the stage of the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco uttered the line, You ever feel like you've been cheated? And the Sex Pistols all went their separate ways following the show. Now, once the Sex Pistols broke up, Johnny Rotten, of course, started Public Image Limited, and within a year, scored a top 10 hit in the UK with the song Public Image. of its time yeah it's a classic yeah it's nine that's 1978 you know like how many bands in the 80s sounded exactly like that you know it was it's extremely influential like public image limited i mean i'm not the biggest pil fan in the world myself <laughs> uh rise is a fucking great song uh but yeah it, it's it but still you can't deny how truly influential public image limited was to uh the music scene in the 80s but Sid vicious never had the comeback that Johnny Rotten had. While he did briefly attempt a continuation of his musical career, despite having no musical talent... <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> he was mostly spending his time with heroin addiction and his girlfriend, 
Nancy Spongen. Oh, Nancy. Oh, Nancy. They called her a nauseating Nancy. <laughs> Did she deserve that nickname? A lot of people think so. <laughs> she was she was really a young, intelligent woman. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. Like, I mean, she had plenty of emotional and behavioral issues. A lot. Personality problems. Yes. Uh, she was incredibly immature. Even when she was at 18, 19 years old. And she was also prone to like violence and mental instability. I mean, she was a very disturbed person. Extremely so. I yeah. Mean, at the same time, she was highly intelligent. Yeah. I mean, didn't you tell me she had an IQ of like 172? Well, that's what she said. <laughs> oh, that's what she said. Oh, fuck that. But she did skip grades. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she was very smart. Yes. It's just that her being able to communicate that was a lot of like, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, she was not, uh, from what uh, people say, she was not the most eloquent of people. Uh, but, no. But, but Nancy knew that she had all these problems and did not do anything whatsoever to help it. I mean, she only made her problems worse uh, through drug addiction, through drinking, uh, through sex. Just sex, just through fucking up. Well, that's kind of what happened when she moved to uh, New York. Uh, by then, she was already like a groupie. Yeah, because she was from Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was hanging out with Aerosmith, New York Dolls, and that's when she got the idea of going to New York. She moves to New York, lived there. She was like 17. She had like a little basement apartment. She was working as a go-go dancer, sometimes sex worker. And that was the time, around that time, when she got hooked on heroin. And desperately trying to get a boyfriend yes trying to get recognition well trying to get a famous boyfriend she was desperate for that yes and so at that time she met uh, a friend of hers phil marcad mm -hmm. uh, who was a frontman for the senders senders are a very underrated new york band they're fucking great oh, i mean they're they're so a, good there i would describe the senders as a, the best bar band you will ever see in your life you're not the first to say that <laughs> and you won't be the last <laughs> But yeah, she became friends with Phil and, you know, he would come over, console her when she would have her little tantrums and, you know, she'd be sobbing like, no one will go out with me. No one likes me. Those fucking assholes. And I'm like, D you know, don't call them that. Yeah. <laughs> and Phil just sat her down. It's like, listen, nobody wants to go out with you because you're a junkie, yeah. Nancy. You're a nice girl. All you have to do is quit heroin. And she's like, can't do that. <laughs> Not possible. So he's like. Let's then get away. Yeah. Why don't you go out of town? Uh, stop this tantrum. Please stop this tantrum. Yeah. Why don't you go to France? Because Phil is French. So he's like, Paris is beautiful. And Nancy's like, I don't know French. <laughs> and Phil's like, oh, this takes a lot of patience. Okay. <clears throat> Why don't you go to England? Yeah. Yes, they speak English in England. Get away from your me, your dealer and me. <laughs> uh, get away from all of us and just go there and start new. And then uh, this is all you could read all about the New York scene, uh, Phil's uh, friendship with a lot of people, Johnny Thunders, New York Dolls, everybody and Nancy Spungen in his book, uh, Punk Avenue. It's, I really recommend it. It's a really good read. And in it, he's quoted in the book. I apologize to the Sex Pistols for having convinced Nancy Spungen to go to London. Maybe it wasn't <laughs> such a great idea after all. <laughs> well, Nancy, I mean, she'd gotten into, I, I believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I didn't she get into heroin through like Johnny Thunders and the rest of the Heartbreakers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was her ride to New York yeah. when she moved. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she already, she was already deep into it. Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, they went to London. And so when Phil mentioned London, Nancy's like, oh, that's a good idea. Because 
Jerry Nolan is there. Yeah. And she really liked Jerry Nolan. Like she would follow him around uh, you know, and he would just like have her around just because she had money and drugs. Mm-hmm. Jerry Nolan, of course, who was in the New York Dolls and then was in the Heartbreakers. That's right. And he said, well, I kind of just used her for money and drugs. She went around telling everyone I was her boyfriend, but that wasn't really true. Yeah. I just liked having her around so I can get drugs. I know it's shitty. Yeah. I but- mean- I mean, that's the thing about the the Heartbreakers, too. I mean, the Heartbreakers brought heroin to the UK. They were the fucking horrible, gnarled plant (laughs) that brought heroin to the UK punk scene. It was their fault. Like, like, that is not a matter of conjecture. Patient zero right there. (laughs) They say, yeah, it was our fault. Everyone else says, yeah, it was their fault. Like... (laughs) Yeah, the the heart the heartbreakers. Unfortunately, yeah, they brought heroin to the UK. Well, Iggy would like a word with you then. <laughs> <laughs> so right before Nancy leaves for London, the night before, she drops off her black cat at Phil's house because she's like, "I need someone to take care of this cat, Phil. Thank you so much." Phil's like, "No problem. I have a cat myself. My I got a little kitten named Poof. Mm-hmm. It'll be all good. They'll hang out. They'll be buddies." And she's like, "Great. Goodbye. Goodbye." <laughs> Gets on a plane, whoosh, all the way to London. <laughs> Phil is there. Spending the night with Nancy's black cat and poof, Nancy's black cat just runs away, hides. Of course, that's the way cats do. Yeah. He's like, where am I? This is weird. (laughs) And then the next day, Phil wakes up to hearing cats screaming. Yeah. And so he runs into the kitchen and he sees Nancy's cat holding his cat by the neck. Oh. And they're just screeching like, yeah. <laughs> and there's blood everywhere. Nancy's cat's about to break this cat's neck in two. Jesus. I know. So what happened was is that when Nancy would be using a lot of heroin, she would leave her spoons unattended <sighs> laying around the apartment. The black cat would be licking those spoons, became addicted to heroin, lost its goddamn mind, and just started freaking out. So yeah. trying to kill this cat, poof. So Phil grabs Nancy's cat, grabs it by the neck to try to tear it away from his cat, and it latches onto his shoulder and his arm like tight, like teeth, claws, just really tight on him. And he's just wailing around like he's Ben Stiller in the 90s. And he's like, I gotta get this cat like uh, off me. He's he's he thought he was gonna pass out, so he just rams the cat's head against the wall like thunk, thunk. And he had to do it a bunch of times until it let go and just ran away. And he just like ran screaming all the way to the hospital. Got stitches. Still has scars to this day. I would imagine. <laughs> you know what happened to that black cat? What? Sobered up. <laughs> lived a nice long life with Poof and Phil. <laughs> so look, there's a happy ending after all. There is one happy ending in this story. Uh, I mean, once Nancy got to uh, to the UK, you know, she eventually hooked up with Sid. And before Nancy, like, Sid was, yeah, he was an asshole, but he at the very least was somewhat together. He got, he could go out and play a show you know like he could hang out but once him and nancy started getting together from what one thing that one person said is that after sid got together with nancy sid hated everything except heroin and nancy because sid was not a heroin addict before nancy spongeon showed up no i mean some people say yeah he tried it a few times but nancy is the one who actually introduced a daily regiment yes of heroin yeah and he was useful to her yeah. And he, but but not just that, not just like in a Jerry Nolan, Nancy Spongeon way. He actually did like her a lot. He did. 
he he defended her. He said, "Now she's an all right girl. She's really sweet. She takes care of me." Because that's the thing about Sid, being a pretty boy that he is, would always be taken care of by women. Yes, always. Like he all he depended on women constantly to take care of him, uh, and he ended up depending on uh, probably the worst woman he could have depended on <laughs> uh, to, to take care of him. Which is why she got such a bad reputation because of that. Not just because of maybe her sleeping around and starting fights with everyone, but it's because she took Sid, all of Sid, from everybody, and that's why yeah. the band uh, just didn't hang out with Sid anymore. Malcolm McLaren was like, ah, this is bad. I need to do something about it. Yeah. So he tried to kidnap Nancy Spungen. <laughs> tried to, like him and a roadie, just grabbing her and trying to throw her in a car. And she like runs off, and then they're trying to pick her up and put her back in the car because they're like, we bought you a one-way ticket to New York. You gotta go. <laughs> and then a cop is looking over. is like, hey, what's going on there? They're like, nothing. 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 <laughs> nothing. Everything's fine. And when they just realize, like, they can't physically abuse her yes. in any way. They cannot physically, re- criminally remove her from the country, yeah. That's when uh, Malcolm McLaren decided, all right, you know what? I'll just get Sid away from Nancy then. Yeah. And that's why they booked a mini Holland tour. They went to Holland. They did like five or six gigs just to get Sid away. Yeah. And it might have worked for a little while, but then eventually they're going to come back. Yeah, and that was also part of the American tour. Like the American tour, that it was a huge fight. Uh, between Sid and the rest of the Pistols as far as Nancy coming along. They're like, there's no fucking way she's coming along. Can No, absolutely not. And, and eventually he, he acquiesced and, you know, and left without her. But as soon as the tour was over, they got right back together and picked up right where they left off. Because after the Sex Pistols broke up and Sid Vicious Fortunes in the UK took a bit of a downturn, the two of them decided, like, why the fuck are we staying in the UK anymore? Let's go to where the punk scene is really fucking kicking off. Let's go to New York City. Ah. And New York City is, of course, much better if you're a heroin addict. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to the source. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So Sid and Nancy, they they fly to New York. Uh, They check in at the Chelsea Hotel, August 23rd or 24th, 1978. And the Chelsea Hotel, as a lot of people know, it was a very, very famous kind of artist den Mm -hmm. uh, turned flop house, you know, from uh, since like the late 1800s. Like all kinds of people stayed there. Bob Dylan stayed there. Dylan Thomas stayed there. there. There were a lot of people that did a lot of fucking great work like in the Chelsea Hotel. It was one of those hotels where artists would go to to like get work done. Right, like Patti Smith did in mm-hmm. the 60s. And, uh, but by the mid-70s, it was just a decrepit flop house for like artists, students, and of course, junkies. It was New York. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was New York in the late 70s. It was fucking awful. So when they come back, the funny thing is, remember Phil Marcad mm-hmm. from The Senders? He ran into uh, Nancy and Sid outside the Chelsea Hotel. And he's like, oh, hey, Nancy, how did it go in London? <laughs> and she's like, oh, I brought, I have a boyfriend now. His name is Sid. And Phil's like, oh, thank God. Cool. <laughs> and Sid just standing there kind of despondent, sort of like just... Weaving in and out of consciousness, probably. Yeah, just to- totally strung out. Yeah. And uh, Phil's like, yeah, well, I'm on my way to go pick up a vacuum cleaner. Because <laughs> he was. He was on his way to yeah. do an errand. And um, and then that's when, like, Sid perked up. He's like, what? What? You're going to go pick something up? He's like, yeah, I'm going to go get a vacuum cleaner. He's like, oh, what's a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> Is that some sort of lingo? <laughs> Explain to me what a vacuum cleaner is. 
and feels like it's uh, something to clean carpets. <laughs> you know, it goes room when you turn it <laughs> room, on. Room, room, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sid like just was like, oh, never mind. Ah, uh, fuck that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Once Sid and Nancy settled into the Chelsea Hotel, Sid attempted to start a new project with him as the lead singer using Johnny Thunders from the Heartbreakers and Arthur Killer Kane, formerly of the New York Dolls, as a backup band. Oh, yeah, when they tried to put uh, the Idols, the band of the Idols that Steve Dior was in and Barry Jones. Well, they they made this, like, uh, super group, I guess. This super heroin group, <laughs> if you will. Except for Arthur Kane. Arthur Kane just had a horrific drinking problem. All the rest of them, yeah, heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. And because Sid needed money to keep the heroin habit going, right? And the only thing he could do was put on shows. So the shows that he did with the Idols, with this backing band, they did in September uh, at Max's Kansas City. The shows were poorly planned. They were terribly executed. I mean, it was all Nancy being his manager. Yeah, because Nancy decided, I'm going to be his manager. I'm going to make sure Sid Vicious is a gigantic star. And she didn't know what the fuck she was doing at yeah. all oh no i mean she was terrible with money uh pure hell well uh, i think the first uh all black punk band from the 70s opened for them yeah and pure hell's uh, actually really fucking good like yeah. let, let's listen to a pure hell track this one's called i feel bad <laughs> Great. They're great. You that should is... listen to the These Boots Are Made For Walking cover. They, they do a very good cover of These Boots Are Made For Walking, yeah. Yeah, the album's called uh, Noise Addiction. That drummer is fucking sick. Like, that dude pounds. <laughs> 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 like, you can hear when, like, a drummer's playing absolutely as hard as they possibly can, and that dude was fucking playing. The, these shows uh, at this time in New York City, like, these sorts of groups, uh, this was not uncommon. You know, especially after, like, the breakup of glam, you know, in the mid-70s, you know, when the New York Dolls kind of disintegrated. Like, a lot of these guys were, like, looking for a project, and none of them really panned out. No, no. The shows uh, that they tried to do with the idols, you know, Sid Vicious and the idols, it just was just a total mess. Yeah. They didn't know what the fuck to do. They didn't know how to play. Like, not at least not together. Like, they were uh, highly disorganized. You know, you could tell they maybe rehearsed a few times. Because... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Sid would just kind of quit halfway through a song. Yeah. And be like, I don't know what to do. And then Nancy would be on the side be like, I got you a drink. <laughs> you want some coffee? <laughs> Sid, Sid, wake up, Sid. Sid, Sid. Sid. He's always sleeping. <laughs> 
And that's the thing is that we know these shows were bad because the shows were recorded. <laughs> uh, like they did, like the the three of the shows uh, that they did at uh, Max's Kansas City, uh, they were recorded, they were released in 1978 as Sid Sings and in 1993 as The Idols with Sid Vicious. Um, but they're mostly just a, a predictable mess of covers. I mean, besides the fact that Sid was an uninteresting frontman and uninterested as a frontman, <laughs> uh, the Idols, they, they couldn't even properly play the Stooges covers that they chose. I mean, we've we've gone through uh, on this show, we've played two bands that did fantastic Stooges covers. I mean, the Sex Whistles did a, a pretty damn good cover of No Fun. Uh, and, of course, we heard The Damned do a fucking blistering cover of 1970. Yes. Uh, but on this show, these guys are too fucked up to properly play James Williamson guitar riffs. Like, listen to them playing, like, the simplified high school version of Search and Destroy. Totally skip the first verse. One, li- <laughs> one line from the first verse and straight into the chorus, and then uh, kind of gets it together for the second verse. Uh, but overall, yeah, it's a fucking mess. I mean, I think he thought, I'm Sid Vicious. I can just go up there and be Sid Vicious, and everyone's going to love it. Well, that kind of worked because they packed all the shows. They did pack all the shows. To bad reviews. To horrible fucking <laughs> yeah. reviews. <laughs> like, the, 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 the reviews are pretty much just... What the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, what do these people think they're doing? This is awful. And what little currency that Sid Vicious had built up as the basis for the Sex Pistols spent itself when people began to realize he didn't have anything to offer other than a pretty face. Now, Sid might have had something to offer musically eventually, but instead of working on his craft in any meaningful way, he spent all of his time with Nancy at the Chelsea Hotel shooting up what money he'd made from the shows. Now, Sid and Nancy's life leading up to the night of Nancy's death was, like the lives of many heroin addicts, ultimately dull. And if you really want to study in tedious filmmaking, go and watch Sid and Nancy, Alex Cox's biopic, which explores the tedium of heroin addiction in depth. And filmmaking. (laughs) God, it's such a tedious movie. I love Repo Man, Alex Cox. I do, but this movie just went on. It goes on. On and on and on and on. They made this movie, It, I mean, in the span of two years of mm. the Sex Pistols as Sid and Nancy's life. Mm-hmm. And it just, it felt like I lived through six months. <laughs> I, I aged. <laughs> I was tired. I mean, it's bad enough that you and I are sitting at home, yeah. kind of laying around, kind of like they are. Yeah. <laughs> but more like strung out on cookies. <laughs> I know, like Lisa Simpson yeah, the yeah. Simpsons. That's actually us. Yes, exactly. Uh, we're out of chocolate, babe. <laughs> we'll get some more eventually. I want some more. <laughs> I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Chloe Webb's performance as uh, Nancy Spungen. Like Nancy Spungen was annoying, yes, but she wasn't that annoying. Uh, I don't know if you it just w- try, you try, <laughs> just poke her in. Sid, Sid. 
dead. I mean, that's half the fucking movie. <laughs> uh, the The first half of the movie is fun because it's you know it's the Sex Pistols and you kind of get it's very atmospheric and you get a feeling for the scene at the time. But once the movie gets to be like, let's just follow Sid and Nancy for the last year of their lives after the Sex Pistols. Uh, God, it's boring. Uh, it's a very difficult movie to find. Uh, don't waste your time. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to see it. See there's it. Uh, there's plenty of uh, just go watch the great rock and roll swindle uh, or um, the filth and the fury if you want more Sex Pistols. Like those, they're pretty good documentaries. Uh, infuriating at times, but you know, <laughs> they're still pretty good documentaries. They're fun. When it comes to the night in question concerning the death of Nancy Spungen, the story is by no means simple or clear cut. And there are no less than five different scenarios as to how everything could have gone down that night. So we're going to go through all of them. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm ready. And at the end, you can use your own judgment concerning how Nancy ended up dead on the bathroom floor of the Chelsea Hotel and just who might have been responsible. Now, really, theories one and two are pretty much the same, but the question is one of intent. If you truly believe Sid Vicious killed Nancy Spungen, as the cops certainly did, then the question is whether or not you think he meant to kill her. So, let's go through what we know, or at least what people who were there that night have said, because many of the witnesses are what you'd call less than reliable. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I just throw my hands up in the air. Well... At 9.45 p.m. on October 11th, 1978, Sid and Nancy left their room and went down the hall to visit friends Kathy O'Rourke and Leon Matthews, a.k.a. Neon Leon. Oh, that's a good name. It's a great name. Neon Leon. Well, he was a musician. He was a friend of theirs. Uh, he was, you know, part of the glam movement. He was living in Chelsea Hotel just down the hall from them because remember they were moved down to the first floor, so they became little neighbors. Yeah, they were to move down to room one hundred. Yes, that's right. That's the infamous room. <laughs> and it was that night where Sid and Nancy came over for dinner. They had a dinner of beef burgundy. Oh. Yes. And a little bit of a chat because they also brought with them uh, Sid's leather jacket for Leon because Sid is like, here, hold on to this for me. Yeah, that was one of the weird things hmm. that, that people kind of point out is that they brought Sid's leather jacket and they brought a bunch of uh, Sex Pistols clippings, like press clippings and uh, little mementos uh, that Sid uh, had collected throughout you know his time with the band. Uh, and he said, why don't you hold on to these for me? Which is very strange, Mm. almost as if they thought they might have been in danger. Now, Leon Leon said that Sid sat on Leon's bed looking at old pictures of himself, you know, this little press packet that he had, and Sid was talking about, like, fuck, I'm not good looking anymore. Yeah, well, heroin. Yeah, heroin, exactly. But Nancy paced around the room trying to inspire everyone to go out and get, quote, some drugs. The thing that makes you ugly? <laughs> Good drugs. <laughs> That's what Nancy wanted. But Sid's, you know, Sid is kind of looking back a little bit on his, I mean, he's, he seemed like he was taking stock. And Sid, he was really listening to Nancy talking about good drugs. While Nancy went on and on about drugs, Sid was staring at pictures and stroking his face with a knife, saying that there was no future 
for Sid Vicious. The knife. That knife. That knife. The knife. Uh, five and a half inch switchblade knife uh, that actually Sid and Nancy had bought in Times Square either earlier that day or a few days before. They they said that they had to buy a knife for protection because yeah. they were constantly getting like, sh- you know, shaken down, beat up. I mean, because they're trying to cop drugs yeah. from drug dealers or other criminals and always ending up sometimes a little bit beaten. Yeah, because Sid Vicious was, uh, at this point, I mean, 98 pounds soaking wet. You know, I don't know exactly how much Sid Vicious weighed, but he's definitely skinnier than I am. Super skinny. It, I mean, yes, and he was a tall guy. Very, it, very tall. So he had no meat on him. Yeah, extremely skinny. Uh, and the, the knife in question, the Jaguar X11, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a switchblade. You know, it was the type of blade that you're going to use to stab someone with. There was rumors for the longest time that uh, the knife was given to him by Didi Ramon. Uh, the whole story, there's like six different versions of it. Is that like Stiv Baters from the Dead Boys gave Didi Ramon a knife after Stiv Baters got stabbed, and then Didi Ramon gave the knife to Sid Vicious. But that's not true. No. No. Didi Ramon had nothing to do with this other than, you know, being a, a really bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> Now, around midnight, Kathy O'Rourke left the Chelsea Hotel for her go-go dancing job in New Jersey, while Neon Leon claims to have gone to Max's Kansas City. Sid and Nancy, meanwhile, went back to their room. From there, we only have snippets of what happened, and the people who do claim to have been present at one point or another are, to say the least, as we said, highly unreliable because they were all light to heavy hard drug users. At about 1.30 a.m., Nancy supposedly made a frantic phone call to a friend in Queens begging the friend to bring her and Sid synthetic morphine because heroin at that time in New York City was impossible to find. City's dry. And the person on the other end of that call was Rocket's Red Glare. That was his name. <laughs> Rocket's Red Glare. Not his given name. No. But, the, <laughs> but that's what he called himself, Rocket's Red, Rocket's Red Glare. Well, he was a heroin addict, sometimes roadie, sometimes bouncer, sometimes drug dealer, friends of all the junkie riffraff of that time in downtown New York. He went on to do crazy things later, but right now he's just a man about town. Yes. And uh, Man about town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's the guy where you walk into a local's bar and you don't want to sit in his seat yes. on his stool <laughs> yeah, in yes. the corner. <laughs> so Nancy calls up Rockets, uh, said like, hey, I have $1,400 to spend on drugs. All right, can I get the synthetic morphine uh, called Delaudids? Uh, Delaudids? Uh, I think Delaudids. It's, it's, I think it's Delaudids. All of these uh, get drug names are all very difficult. Can I get... D4. Yeah, that, D4. That's exactly. what they used to call it. They, they all had, because it was difficult to say, they all had uh, <laughs> all of these synthetic morphine uh, tablets and pills and liquids and all that shit. They all had uh, fun street names. Yeah. Yeah, and D4 was the street name for this one. Yeah. Now, Rocket said that he got to the Chelsea Hotel 45 minutes after the phone call, but brought no D4s. Instead, he said he hung out for two hours talking to Nancy about being Sid's bodyguard. Also, uh, if you check out Sad Vacation, which is a great documentary about Sid and Nancy's last days, uh, there is this actor by the name of Ned Van Zant who said he was with Rockets that night. Oh. So Rockets wasn't alone. Oh, supposedly. I didn't know that. And that uh, Ned had gone with Rockets to Sid and Nancy's room. And he said, this is what Ned said. He said that he saw Sid on the bed, passed out 
on tunnels yeah. because they were always getting those too. Yeah. And tunnels, uh, for those of you who don't know, they're extremely heavy sedatives, uh, usually reserved for cancer patients at the end of their lives. Uh, it, it blocks out everything. Like it, it is a one. It, it's up there with fucking horse tranquilizers. Yes. Like, oh, like yeah. It, no, it can knock you out. Yeah. You take two and alls. You're fucking out. Uh, but that's the thing is that Rockets Red Glare also said that Sid kind of was coming in and out of consciousness. At one point, that's what Rockets Red Glare said. Mm. Like that's it. He said that anytime there was like a noise in the hallway, like Sid would kind of like go. <laughs> and then he would, <laughs> and then he would pass back out again. And finally, Rockets said that he left at 5 a.m but not before seeing what might be an important clue. Well, he said that on his way out, he saw Nancy pull over $1,000 in cash from her bag just to show him how much money she was prepared to spend on dope should Rockets be able to find some. And according to Rockets, as he stopped in the lobby to make a phone call at the front desk, he saw Sid and Nancy's regular Quaalude dealer rounding the corner to possibly go up to Sid and Nancy's room. And that guy... Could have been this guy, a drug dealer, Steve Cincotti, mm -hmm. that you could read on England Streaming that they mentioned his name. Do not Google this guy because he does not really exist online at all. There's uh, uh, unless you want to, you know, call some, you know, high school football quarterback <laughs> who happens to also be named Steve Cincotti or a skin doctor <laughs> and frame them for murder. <laughs> This guy, we don't know who he is no or idea. where we got this name, but apparently this is also a mysterious man that happened to be going maybe on the way to Sid and Nancy's room. Yeah. And pretty soon afterward, the night bellhop, a man named Kenny, got a call that an unruly and noisy British man was meandering around the hallways upstairs. He went to investigate and found a highly intoxicated Sid Vicious. Yes. And now Sid Vicious is on the second floor. Remember, their room is on the first floor. Kenny goes up to the second floor. Sid Vicious is trying to pound and start screaming at room 228. Yeah. Just screaming. He was just so out of it. And so Kenny's like, hey, hey, you shouldn't really uh, be bothering anybody. I don't think they want to be bothered right now. And so Sid was like threatening him and trying to punch him. Eventually, Kenny just had to hit Sid and kept punching him until he was down on the ground and a little bit calmer after <laughs> getting all those punches in the head. Sid went down. Sid got blood on his mouth, his nose, but that was it. There was no other blood around him. This yeah. is a little important thing to remember. That is another little important thing to remember. And then supposedly Sid got up and left. Kenny said, according to court documents, that he just saw Sid going down the stairs. So he imagined that he was just going to go back to his room. Yeah, and, and who knows what the hell Sid was doing up there. I mean, hell, we've even had our own experience with uh, mysterious drunkenness and uh, okay. hotels. listen. <laughs> I get it. Well... Also, Sid and Nancy lived on the second floor until they were moved to the first. So maybe he was so disoriented, he thought he was going home. It might, maybe. But yes, that happened to me once. <laughs> Where we were in Cleveland and we had a lot of drinks because we were having a great time. We were l watching some great live bands. Yeah, we gone out and see, saw the, seen these bands, uh, The Soft Kills and uh, Vows, B-O-W-W-S, oh, uh, so Vows. The, both bands are, are fucking great. But yeah, Vows definitely. They're on... They've been on tour with uh, Poppy recently. Uh, they're fucking great. 
And so, after a great night of music, <laughs> we go to bed, and uh, I promise you I wasn't on any D4s. No, 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 we were just... just lots and lots of liquor. We'd had a lot of liquor that night. We had a very good time. I wake up, I go to the bathroom door, I gotta go pee in the middle of the night, mm. I go out, and then I realize I opened the wrong door, because it was the I was in the hallway. <laughs> The and door was, to the hallway was right next. Was literally right next to the door to the bathroom. Well, that's how hotels usually are. I, I <laughs> you see, I don't travel as often as you do. So I'm out in the hallway, banging on the door. Let me in. I don't even know if I was wearing pants. I was dead ass passed out, and you were not wearing pants. <sighs> Well, I had to explain to the concierge that I was allowed to go in there <laughs> once I made my little trip downstairs. And <clears throat> anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, we also had another sit and yes. moment. <laughs> and where... the concierge, I, I finally woke up to a concierge going, hey, hey, do you know this woman? <laughs> <laughs> and then the, just the door because he brought security too and the door just closes to me running and be like why did you wake up <laughs> so he's like wow just gonna just gonna walk away from that but yeah. anyway so it was kind of the same idea where Sid <laughs> not exactly the same idea not exactly the same idea but somewhat we understand Sid just totally out of it totally doesn't know what he's doing where he's coming or going and ends up just going down the stairs mm -hmm. we don't know what happened after that or do we no idea a couple of hours later, a woman who lived right next door to Sid and Nancy, Vera Mendelssohn, said she heard a series of frightened moans coming from a woman in Sid and Nancy's room. Now, Vera said it sounded like it was coming from someone who seemed to be alone because the woman, who was almost certainly Nancy, wasn't calling anyone's name. But when the moaning stopped, Vera went back to sleep. And her, and this... I really don't blame her that much. Can you imagine living next door to these two fucking people? Constantly screaming at each other. Constantly fighting. Like, yeah. If, it was the norm. It was the norm. For Chelsea Hotel as well. Yes, of course. Yeah, just for the entire hotel. Like, it was the norm. Meanwhile, Sid left the Chelsea Hotel and went to the methadone clinic to get his morning fix. Because the methadone clinic opened at 6 a.m. Then, at 9.30 a.m., the guy at the front desk got a call from outside the hotel that there was trouble in room 100, but nobody knows who made that call. A bellhop named Charles went to investigate, but before he could return, Sid called the front desk and said, Someone is sick. I need help. And when the ambulance arrived, they found Nancy Spungen dead on the bathroom floor with a single stab wound to the stomach. And the autopsy surmised that she'd bled out for at least three hours before she finally expired. Yeah, it said uh, in the autopsy that she was she was she had been stabbed somewhere between six and seven a.m. and died somewhere between eight and ten a.m. Mm-hmm. Just a single stab wound, an inch long, uh, not immediately fatal. No, but uh, just a lot of hemorrhaging that lasted hours to eventually for her to unfortunately die yeah now here's where we get to motives now it is possible that sid vicious killed nancy accidentally as he wasn't in what you'd call his right mind and the two had a serious history of domestic violence towards each other that's true i mean according to sid's uh photographer friend joe stevens he said that sid told joe that Nancy had smacked him around after Sid got punched by the bellhop. So when he came back, Nancy 
punched him and he took the knife out and said, do it again. I'm going to take your fucking head off. Mm -hmm. She stuck her belly out into his knife when he was holding it threateningly. Like maybe they had a little bit of a tussle or something. Mm -hmm. And where Sid was explaining this, he's like, I don't know. She didn't know. She crashed out on the bed. I crashed out on the other. Yeah. That's what Joe Stevens said when he ran into Sid Vicious a little bit later. Right. And that's the other thing, too, is that like Sid was regularly violent towards Nancy as well. Like he hit her. I mean, that's just that's a fucking fact is that they would they would get in a fight and Sid would hit her and she'd hit him back. You know, they they would fist fight each other. It's also possible, but not probable, that Sid Vicious stabbed Nancy Spungen with every intent to kill her. But even the people who say Sid Vicious was kind of a piece of shit don't subscribe to that theory. You know, I'm going to take back my pretty boy statement. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're right. This guy's a piece of shit. He is. Sid Vicious is is an absolute piece of shit. Yes. Was. Yes, was a piece of shit. Whether it was his intent or not, we want to find out, though. Uh, That was the police theories from the start. I mean, they they just saw two heroin addicts, and they're just like, (laughs) yeah, he did it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he did it. Even Phil Marcotte even said that when he saw Nancy, last time he saw Nancy alive, like, she had a big red mark over half her face. She said that... uh, Sid had thrown a hot pot of coffee at her. Jesus. So, I mean, things were already just escalating to the next level. So maybe he had meant to kill her in the moment. It's uh, the murder in the... The heat of passion. In the Yes, in yeah. the heat of passion. That's a possibility and also being very strung out on drugs. Well, this is how a lot of domestic violence cases end up. Like a lot of domestic violence cases, not all, of course, uh, and not even most, but quite a few domestic violence cases end in murder uh, because it just escalates more and more and more and more uh, until finally the abuser goes too far. Then there's the possibility of suicidal intent, although one hesitates to call it a suicide attempt. It could be that these two idiots planned a grand romantic suicide pact and that Sid either backed out when it was his turn, or he passed out before he fulfilled his end of the bargain. That is another theory, because uh, a lot of their friends had d- did say, like, they kind of want to go together. They want to kill each other. They're, they're already hopeless. They're already down in the dumps. Uh, even even though they were still trying to... They, what? It's a funny way to d- describe heroin addiction. Down in the dumps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They were down. They were down, man. They were down. In the dumps. (laughs) But, I mean, and also another thing which uh, cannot be really proven to be super reliable is when Sid Vicious's mom and Beverly said that she had found a suicide pact note in his handwriting, in his jeans pocket, Mm -hmm. that said uh, we had a death pact. Yeah. So, But Anne Beverly is uh, among the most unreliable people in this entire story that's right and there's also the possibility that nancy could have stabbed herself and sid was just too far gone on two and alls to come to her rescue because she had a history of doing that yeah she uh she definitely had many suicide attempts uh a lot of times she would call up her friends and say hey this is it i'm calling to say goodbye and they rush over and she does cut herself but just enough just you know and, and i mean like there's a lot of seriousness when it comes to suicide attempt as opposed to saying like this person's just crying for help i mean but in this instance it might have been a, a situation where she's like 
I'll show him. Yes. But the police didn't think it was because they said that there was no hesitation wounds, which apparently was what happened sometimes with suicide attempts mm -hmm. where they try to stab themselves a couple times. There, there was just one clean just wound. Then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was all there was. So that that. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the hesitation wounds. I didn't think about that. But yeah, that that probably that that makes a lot of sense. You and, know, that there was nothing that there, that there was just one clean attempt, you know, but who knows? I who mean, knows? like that, that Spongen had a, a long history of these attention seekers. Uh, and it's possible that she, I mean, considering the fight that they went through, like it could have been that she said, I'm going to fucking, I'll, I'll show him how bad he hurt me by really hurting myself. And then thinking that maybe he'll come save her. Yeah. But he's out. He's, he's out on tunnels. He's fucked out. I mean, he's fucked out. He's <laughs> <laughs> he's gone, you know, as far as consciousness goes. But when you take Sid and Nancy out of the equation completely when it comes to pure responsibility for the murder, that's when the story takes an interesting yet still typical turn when it comes to investigation. To give it some perspective, New York City in the 1970s averaged around 2,000 murders every year. To put it into perspective, last year, in 2019, New York City had 318 murders. Wow. Which means we had entire days in a city of 8 million where no one got murdered. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, hell, we even this year, uh, or last year, we had entire weekends where no one got shot. Like, New York City is a completely different place now than it was in 1979. And to make it even worse, the city was near bankruptcy and the police force was working far below the capacity needed to properly investigate each and every murder. Nancy Spungen was somewhere around murder 1400 that year. Whoa. That meant that as far as the NYPD was concerned, this murder, easy win. You know, you get into the room... Sid sitting there covered in blood. The murder weapon is right there in the room. And the fact that they were both obviously junkies put it low on the investigative totem pole, even if Sid was somewhat of a celebrity. That's right. I mean, they had a body, they had the, the murder weapon, and they had a suspect. It, it seems pretty straightforward. And so they questioned Sid Vicious uh, the next morning when the police were called. And according to court testimony, Sid said, I just went to bed around 1 a.m. Yeah. I woke up at 10 a.m. I went to the methadone clinic. I came back. She was there. Yeah. It, but it was very confusing how he explained everything because he kept changing his version a lot because he was so confused and so disoriented yeah. that he kept saying, well, I saw her in, in the bathroom floor before I went for the methadone clinic, but she wasn't bleeding. Yeah. And then I came back and then she was bleeding. So I tried to clean her off and he even tried, he even cleaned the, the knife. He's like, yeah, I washed the knife off. And they're like, why'd you do that? He's like, I don't know. And then a lot of, and then eventually at one point he was just saying like, well, I called the front desk. I called two, three times. I told them to bring an ambulance. My girlfriend is, was hurt. Somebody stabbed her. I stabbed her. I stabbed, I stabbed her. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of, it, it kind of went from the, down there all the way up to thinking like, well, you know, I do remember that there was a fight. Yes, we had a fight. And uh, I, I punched her on the top of her head. She fell on the bed. And I and I just went to bed. I took a lot of tunnels, you know. And, 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 you know, Nancy had taken a lot, too. So we just went to bed. And I woke up and I thought I pissed the bed. But there was blood. But, you know... That I still went to the methadone clinic. It was it was very confusing on his uh, when they, when they questioned him. He was just incredibly out of it. And that's another weird thing about uh, about 
this whole scenario uh, is that there was blood in the bed. The bed was soaked in blood, which meant that after Nancy got stabbed, she laid down in bed for a while and then went to the bathroom after being after bleeding for hours. And she went to the bathroom and that's where she died. We don't know why. Yeah, I mean, if she wanted to do it, uh, if she wanted to kill herself, like, I mean, why would she get up and go to the bathroom? Or if she was really hurt, uh, a lot of people do say, like, why didn't she go in the hallway and call for help? Or if she can't wake up, Sid. But this is a big mystery on how she ended up there because the bathroom is right next to the front door. Mm -hmm. You got to go down this hall a tiny little hall, and she just kind of ended up there. Maybe she was very disoriented and lost a lot of blood. Yes. Maybe she felt like, I need to clean this up. I'll be okay because a lot of you know heroin junkies' first thought is not, I'm going to go call an ambulance. Yeah. They're just trying, they, a lot of times they just try to walk it off. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and that might be what happened. Don't fucking know. Now, don't get us wrong here. We're not saying that Sid Vicious is a completely innocent boy sold up the river by the NYPD. Like we said, by many, many accounts, Sid was not a good person. He had a history of senseless animal cruelty uh, and a history of domestic violence and a history of just plain violence, like public violence. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is say, hey, are you Sid Vicious? Yeah. At times, it it didn't matter because he was a drug user. He wasn't all there anymore. No, but that's not really the point as it's never the point when it comes to a person who has possibly been falsely accused, no matter who that person is. The point is that someone might have gotten away with murder, and someone who murders once is capable of doing it again. And the person who might have been responsible for this murder, according to a theory that has only recently been explored when someone finally started talking to all the witnesses, that suspect was a mysterious drug addict and fellow Chelsea Hotel resident known only as Michael. Now, if you'll remember, from what Rocket's Red Glare said, Sid and Nancy were flashing quite a large wad of cash around the Chelsea Hotel. Wait, one one thing, though. Rocket's Red Glare's real name, Michael. Oh! (laughs) Then again, there's lots of Michaels. There's a lot of Michaels. (laughs) You could probably walk in a room and there's three Michaels. So it it does get confusing. It could be that Steve guy I talked about. It could be Michael Rockets Red Glare Michael Mm -hmm. or a completely different Michael. Well, this Michael that they're talking about here, he lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And Rockets Red Glare lived in Queens. Ooh, you got me. (laughs) (laughs) Flashing all of this money around the Chelsea Hotel would be a dumb thing to do in today's New York. You know, it's one of the safest big cities in the entire world right now. But in 1979 New York, flashing this much cash was almost guaranteeing that someone was going to take it from you by violent means. Now, I used to, I mean, one of the stories that I always think about is I used to know uh, this woman who bartended at CBGB's for like years and years and years. And she was telling me stories like, oh, this is what New York City was like in, you know, the 70s, 80s and 90s. She said that up even like past 9-11, she still kept all of her money in her boot and kept $10 of mugger money in her jacket oh, pocket. Oh, wow. Because, to give? To give. Because it would happen so often. Uh, it was, and Nancy Spongen is walking around with 
over $1,000, maybe as much as $3,000. And she wasn't good with it. She be she kept dropping money all the time. Yeah. She said like all their friends they were like, yeah, she would constantly be dropping like crumbled $100 bills. Sometimes people would just follow her around. Yeah. Just to get some money. Exactly. And after Nancy's death, that money was nowhere to be found. Where did it go? Who knows? Ah. A part of that <laughs> A part of that money had come from the Max's Kansas City gigs because Nancy had secured $3,000 for three nights of performances. But the other chunk came from CBS Records, who had released a post-Sex Pistols cover of Sid Vicious doing Frank Sinatra's My Way. <laughs> fine <laughs> and you know man i mean you know me i i'm a huge fan of outsider music i'm a huge fan of people who can't sing uh but it's terrible yeah it's, <laughs> but I, so people I, I think bought it's it. fine i think it's fine yeah i mean people bought it you know people bought the record and you know they got said nancy got a check from cbs records for that single now neon leon said that when he spoke to nancy that night the night she died she told him that Sid had taken a bunch of tunals and was passed out on the bed. Absolutely useless. But Leon also said that he heard another voice in the background that wasn't Sid. And it wasn't Rocket's Red Glare either. It was another guy who lived in the Chelsea Hotel who said he went by room 100 at about 4 a.m. And he also claimed that Sid was passed out cold. And he said that there was another person in the room whom he knew as either Snakey, Spidey, or Skippy. It could have been Skip Wayne, who was another hanger-on guy who said that he claimed to be uh, Neon Leon's manager. And Leon's like, that's not true. <laughs> he was just a guy who hung out. Yeah. But perhaps most damning of all is that a further third witness said that a drug addict called Michael, who lived on the sixth floor of the Chelsea Hotel, was seen with a mysterious wad of cash after Nancy's death, tied with a purple hair tie known to belong to Nancy Spungent. Now, this doesn't mean that Michael was the killer. This is circumstantial evidence. Right, yeah. There are plenty of explanations for this. It could be that Michael walked by the room, saw an open door, walked in, grabbed the money, and fucking left. And it could also be that all these people that say they saw this mysterious person, that mysterious person, could be that they all got together after Sid's death or after Nancy's death and created this story through a bunch of what-ifs and conjecture. That's how stories get created. And over the years, after you tell a certain story of like what I think might have happened, once you tell that story long enough, it becomes this is what happened. This happens all the fucking time. The further you get away from a crime or an event, the less reliable witnesses are. 
It's also possible that the NYPD took that money because it's not unheard of, especially back then, for the NYPD to just grab cash from crime scenes when they don't think that money is going to be missed. And they were allowing people in the crime scene. Yeah. They would be like, yeah, just don't take any pictures. You can go in. And they're like, really? I could just walk in? <laughs> it, it's unimaginable now. Yeah, it really is. But we'll never know. Because the NYPD never spoke with any of these people who saw weird shit that night that pointed towards Sid Vicious being innocent. Despite those witnesses requesting to talk to police the very day Sid was arrested. And that points more towards maybe they did see something. Because they were in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel that day when Sid was getting taken out. When the body was getting taken out. Talking to the police saying like, hey, I saw some weird shit. Take my witness statement. And then we, and the NYPD said, nah. Don't need to. We got the guy. We got the guy right yeah. here. There's no need to, uh, to. There's no need to waste time talking to you. Six more people have been murdered since this guy was arrested. We gotta go take care of those murders. Not enough resources. Just not enough. Now it's possible that all of this would have come out in the trial because it's almost a given at this point to say that Sid Vicious was very quickly charged with the murder of Nancy Spungen. Only problem was, Sid Vicious tumbled even further downhill following Nancy's death. After he was released on bail, Vicious attempted suicide twice while staying with his mother at the Hotel Seville. His that's that's when he was saying, I want to be with Nancy. I want to be with Nancy, trying to slit his wrists. Yeah. Then, after being released from the hospital, Sid Vicious ended up back in Rikers for two more months on a totally different charge other than murder following an incident at Haraz in December. Yeah, so this is a crazy thing. He's out on bail. He managed to get bail for murder. Mm. It's insane. I mean, Malcolm McLaren obviously got all the big guns, all these huge lawyers, and they're like, $50,000 bail. You're good. So Sid goes out. What does he do? He goes to a party. Yeah. He goes, hangs out. He goes to Haraz. He's hanging out with a bunch of people. He's hanging out with Steve Dior and Peter Kodak, his uh, photographer friend. And uh, it was around 1.30 a.m. He gets in a huge fight with Todd Smith just because he's bothering, like, Todd's like friend. He's like trying to like pinch her, poke at her, just just trying to be a piece of shit. Being an asshole. And Todd Smith is Patty Smith's brother. Yes. Sid was like harassing one of uh, Todd's friends and just kind of like being a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And so Todd is like, hey man, just relax, man. Just leave her alone. We're trying to do a show here at Haraz. Cool your shit. Yeah. And Sid wouldn't have any of it. He was like trying to punch Todd, but Sid can't fucking fight. <laughs> He's strung up. Yeah. He's a mess. And so Todd just punched him a bunch of times in the face and then they just pull him apart. But not before Sid grabbed a bottle of beer and just hit it over Todd's face <sighs> and it smashed his head in, kicked him in the balls. Todd was taken to hospital, got five stitches on his head and uh, pressed charges yeah. in which Sid was arrested and taken to Rikers Island and stayed in custody for uh, nearly two months. Yeah. But on the night that Sid was released, he made the same mistake that countless other heroin addicts have made over the years after taking a break. Same shit that happened to Philip Seymour Hoffman. At his release party, Sid Vicious didn't account for a lowered tolerance. And the dose he took that night proved fatal. Yeah, well, he got picked up from jail because they thought it would be a good idea to release him Yeah, again. Uh, he got picked up from his mom. And they they went over to Michelle Robinson's house, which uh, was Sid's new girlfriend. Yeah, he he moved on pretty fast after Nancy died. But he but that's the other thing. It's like we said, he needed a woman to take care of him. 
That's right. So Michelle was more than happy to take care of him. They go to her apartment on 63 Bank Street, have a little celebration dinner. They were making with Sid's mom uh, spaghetti bolognese mm. uh, with their friends. Like a bunch of friends came over. Eileen Polk came over. Jerry Nolan and his girlfriend came over. Howie Pyro and Jerry Only from the Misfits. Jerry Only was yeah. there. Yeah. Well, you know. He's nice. I, we, <laughs> I know, but it's like, oh, cool. No, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> but so when they got to the apartment and they had their dinner, nice little celebration, Sid's like, I need some drugs. So Sid's mom's like, well, I got you some. Sid tried those drugs. They were not strong enough. He's like, I need more. Give me something better. So he got his friend Peter Kodak to go get the drugs. Now, this is a guy who is a photographer. He um, he did the cover shoot for the damn's first album. Oh, shit. The one with the pie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That. Peter. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and this wasn't until much later. Peter does admit to delivering the extra strong heroin he got from a British guy. Yeah. Uh, probably like at Max's or somewhere where he went. He got super strong. was like 80, 90% pure. He brought it back to Sid. He's like, Sid, you got to be careful of this. This is very, very pure. So Sid's like, okay. So he takes some and he just turns blue. Yes. And he's just like, they're trying to wrap blankets around him. Uh, they're trying to get him to walk. And he's just collapsed. And Sid's mom, Anne, is like, don't call an ambulance. The press will be all over this. Let's just try to just shake him, shake him, wake him up a little bit. And he eventually came to and said, I'm sorry I scared you all. And they were just like relieved. But also all his friends like Jerry Only and, you know, Eileen Polk were all like, look at the time. <laughs> time to go home. <laughs> and so they went home. And it was Michelle, Sid, and his mom. Sid's mom says she fell asleep on the couch in the living room. Sid fell asleep on the bed with Michelle. And the next morning when Sid's mom, Anne, woke up to tap him on the shoulder at 7 a.m. because he had that, like some sort of bail bond hearing, uh, she saw that he was cold to the touch. He had been dead for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, woke up Michelle to her screaming hysterically that there was a dead man in her bed. Yeah. Of course. Because what may have happened... That night is that he may have gone in and grabbed extra drugs from uh, and grabbed extra heroin from his mom because she kept it in her pocket, she said, uh. and taken more when he had woken up while everyone was asleep. Oh, uh, yeah. Another theory suggests that Anne Beverly, his mom, killed him on purpose. Jesus. Uh, uh, purposely made him OD because she thought that he was going to live the rest of his life in prison. That he was not, yes, this was a thing. Jesus Christ. And she is quoted saying like, I, I'm just glad that no one's going to hurt him anymore. My God. Yeah. I, no, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's rough. So they eventually, they cremated Sid uh, like a few days later, a week later in New Jersey. They got his ashes uh, and Sid's mom calls up. Nancy's mom says, hey, can I spread my ashes all over Nancy's grave in Philadelphia? I think it'd be really cool. I mean, they wanted to be together. And Nancy's mom said, no, absolutely not. Yeah, fuck that guy. No, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And so uh, what ended up happening, though, was that Anne Beverly did do it anyways. Of course. She went and she snuck in. She brought Jerry Only with her. <laughs> she, brought, <laughs> she brought Eileen Polk. You know, the, pretty much all of Sid's friends like kind of stayed with his mom for a few weeks yeah. and like kind of took care of her, drove her all the way to Philadelphia. She like snuck over the fence in the middle of the night and just laid all of Sid's ashes all over Nancy's grave. Mm. And 
finally, I guess they were together. I guess. Again. It's not romantic. No. <laughs> this is not This, this is, is like not a romantic story. Everyone wants to make out Sid and Nancy to be this tragic Romeo and Juliet romantic story. It's not romantic. It's fucking stupid and useless. This is how not to be a couple. <laughs> and of course, Anne Beverly uh, herself died of uh, a heroin overdose in suicide in 1996 1996 the same year that the sex pistols did their first reunion tour now because Sid died cops closed the books on the murder of nancy spongeon and no trial took place admittedly it is impossible to say whether or not vicious would have been found guilty but considering all the witnesses that cops refused to speak to it is possible that he could have gotten off but the interesting thing here is that from a cultural perspective, guilt or innocence might not have mattered. What would have mattered was a celebrity trial. If America would have been host to a Sid Vicious murder trial, then there's no doubt that it would have been a media sensation. The name Sid Vicious, and by extension, the Sex Pistols, would have become household names in the United States. As it was, the Pistols tour in America was a blip on the American media landscape, covered but soon forgotten as a novelty, and the vicious murder was pretty much just local New York news. But a murder trial would have resulted in sustained coverage, which would have likely made the Sex Pistols just as notorious here as they were in the UK, albeit for a completely different, yet very distinctly American reason. Violence. And as we all know, notoriety is indistinguishable from popularity when it comes to musicians. Unless you're, of course, you're talking about like R. Kelly or like Gary Glitter. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, when kids are involved, like all bets are off. It, it's not, it's not, it is, it's no good. No, no. <laughs> but if you think about it, Guns N' Roses were notorious and they were the biggest band in the world. All of the hair metal bands were notorious. But what if American rock music in the 80s had not gone the way of glam. Oh, do tell how. <laughs> what if the millions of Americans who listened to Motley Crue and Rat and Poison and all the rest of those assholes had instead been introduced to the Sex Pistols in the late 70s, early 80s through a steady barrage of media coverage? And instead of parties and girls, 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 what if it was, as they put it in Sid and Nancy clean anarchy building off that it's possible that american music sounds completely different and hair <laughs> the hair would be completely different punk broke in america in 1991 with nirvana but imagine punk breaking in 1982 imagine bad brains or the circle jerks or black flag as top 10 bands yes they are my top 10 bands thank you <laughs> Now, I'm not going to say that this is definitely what would have happened had Sid Vicious gone to trial, because as we'll explore on our Ramon series, the everyday antics of the Sex Pistols fucked over punk in America royally. But had the Sex Pistols become popular enough to overcome the squeamishness of the American record industry through a highly publicized murder trial, punk might have had a completely different story than the one we're telling now. Ooh. <laughs> it's a fun what if. It's a very I love this what if. It's a very fun historical what if. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It, a lot of things could have just been different if and it's all owed to these two kids who were 
practically teenagers. Yeah. I mean, uh, Sid Vicious was 21. Yeah. Nancy was 20 years old. Yeah. I mean, they were children. Yeah. Uh, very misguided. Very under, misunderstood. I, I think we, you and I had this argument the other day that I was just like, well, I don't know if they were bad people. But now that we've gone through this whole uh, thing today, um, yeah, they were pretty bad people. <laughs> they were terrible people. I, I was trying to find some sort of goodness, some sort of, I don't know, just anything that I can cling on to, any kind of hope. Yeah. And, and all I found is just the cat survived. <laughs> I mean, when you compare him to a lot of other people uh, in the punk scene, you know, a ton of other people like that that had their problems, sure. But Sid and Nancy were nothing but problems. I mean, I know Sid Vicious was a, a good enough friend to Johnny Rotten at one point in his life. And Johnny Rotten uh, in recent years has said that he greatly regrets bringing Sid Vicious into Sex Pistols. Yeah, he, oh, he's very, uh, he, still con- he still gets emotional over it. Very emotional. But at the same time. It's the only thing Johnny Rotten gets emotional about. Really? <laughs> Even though it's one of those things like you were a kid too, man. Yeah. You know, it's it's a hard thing for everybody. It's a very difficult thing for everybody. Uh, but, and, and you know, if Sid Vicious would have gone to trial, maybe nothing would be different. You know, may, maybe nothing at all. Maybe it's the exact same world that we're living in now. Uh, but it is, it is fun to think that, you know, maybe if he would have gone to trial, you know, every time there's a, a, an update on the 9 o'clock news of the trial of Sid Vicious, they play a little bit of anarchy in the UK. You know, they play just a little bit. And, you know, and a kid who didn't hear the Sex Pistols until, you know, 1991, maybe heard the Sex Pistols in 1981. The way I kind of thought about it is that, you know, like, in order for Nirvana to come together, for in order for Punk to break in 1991 with Nirvana, in order for those three dudes to come together the way they did... There were there had to be so many little things that had to happen, you know, like so they had to hear just the right bands at just the right time, you know, in order to create the band that they did. But what if they heard different bands? Right. What if they heard shit earlier? What if they, you know, what what if it, you know, for me, like I heard Guns N' Roses when I was like four years old, five years old, you know, and, and loved them from the time I was four or five years old. I had the fucking Appetite for Destruction tape at, at five years old and Paradise City was my favorite fucking song. Uh, but what if I had the Sex Pistols tape when I was five years old? What if I had Nevermind the Bollocks? What if Anarchy in the UK was my favorite song at five years old? What kind of parenting is going on? <laughs> I got it from the, the older kids. I got it from fucking Brad. No, okay. you know? <laughs> yeah. Brad, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, that's it. What if, but what if fucking Nevermind the Bollocks was the one that was given to me? You know, how would my musical taste have changed, you know? And by extension, like, you know, how would, the, you know, the people who actually made music, you know, in the 80s and 90s, how would their musical taste? have changed if they would have been exposed to that shareily. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a big what if. And it doesn't really matter <laughs> at all. Um. The answer is we don't know. The answer is we don't, we don't know. know. But yeah. it's interesting to think about. It's very interesting to think about. Yeah. Wow. That it's a crazy story. This whole thing from top to bottom. Uh, the, the whole. I mean, as we said in the beginning, like we thought. This will be easy. Mm-hmm. And it's really actually incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult and incredibly complicated. The, just doing Ramones part one would have been simpler. Because it's a very simple story. <laughs> Such an idiot. <laughs> uh, welcome to the world of heavily researched podcasting. It's never easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. All right, everybody. Uh, well, I guess it's it's time for this week's uh, band. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, this week's band. And this week, uh, we're going to be playing uh, The Lavender Scared. Yes, 
Yes, that I I it was my idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was care. This is I, this I is Carolyn. Yeah, they're fucking amazing. It, it's uh, trans punk out of uh, San Francisco. Um, they're fucking great. The whole album uh, is very good. The whole album is on Spotify. It's called "It Gets Bitter." Uh, which I think is <laughs> clever, very clever, very uh, fucking. It's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, check it out. Uh, check out the Lavender Scared uh, on Spotify. Uh, they've also got stuff available on Bandcamp if you want to go and uh, support the band directly. Uh, you can also do that. Remember that's that is right now the best way to support bands that have lost money because they are no longer on tour. Um, the best way is to go to their Bandcamp uh, and just donate money because with Bandcamp you can—it's pretty much pay what you want when it comes to albums, uh, and that is how—that's uh, how you can help out artists right now. Very uh, cool. Yeah, go to, go to Bandcamp uh, and you know maybe, maybe pay a little bit more if you can. If you're in a position where you're doing fine right now, like if you can pay a little bit more uh, to to maybe make up for some of that lost revenue because. Uh, musicians uh, also work the types of jobs that a lot of people are losing right now. So artists definitely need, they definitely need your help. So any way that you can help out, uh, uh, please do. Um, but yeah, stay safe, everyone out there. Uh, stay inside. Yeah, stay wash inside. Your hand, stay inside. Uh, wash your hands. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the hell else we can say, but you know, we'll all get through this, everybody. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get through this eventually and you know, eventually we'll get back to, to going out to shows and, and having a good time. And, you know, once that happens, we'll we'll see you all out in the New York scene. We can't wait to see you all out there. All right. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Enjoy the Lavender Scared. <laughs> or just Lavender Scared. <laughs>
I'm